Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. Please know that you are welcome here regardless of race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. I hope you all enjoyed The Haunting of Hill House. I was very happy with the finished product, and I'm happy to announce that I broke the all-time downloads in a month record. Previously, it was 28,886. This year, it was 31,236. Thank you all so much for the support and for listening. I'm really very grateful. The next big thing happening on the show is the Christmas ghost stories that run from December 20th to December 25th, and I think I know what I'll be doing with that year. Just got to get started on it. Thank you all so much, and let's get on with the story. Let the red dawn surmise what we shall do when this blue starlight dies and all is through. The Yellow Sign by Robert Chambers 1. There are so many things which are impossible to explain. Why should certain chords in music make me think of the brown and golden tints of autumn foliage? Why should the mass of St. Cecile bend my thoughts wandering among caverns whose walls blaze with ragged masses of virgin silver? What was it in the roar and turmoil of Broadway at six o'clock that flashed before my eyes the picture of a still Breton forest where sunlight filtered through spring foliage and Sylvia bent, half curiously, half tenderly, over a small green lizard murmuring, to think that this is also a little ward of God. When I first saw the watchman, his back was toward me. I looked at him indifferently until he went into the church. I paid no more attention to him than I had to any man who lounged through Washington Square that morning, and when I shut my window and turned back into my studio, I had forgotten him. Late in the afternoon, the day being warm, I raised the window again and leaned out to get a sniff of air. A man was standing in the courtyard of the church, and I noticed him again with as little interest as I had that morning. I looked across the square to where the fountain was playing, and then, with my mind filled with vague impressions of trees, asphalt drives, and the moving groups of nursemaids and holidaymakers, I started to walk back to my easel. As I turned, my listless glance included the man below in the churchyard. His face was toward me now, and with a perfectly involuntary movement I bent to see it. At the same moment, he raised his head and looked at me. Instantly, I thought of a coffin worm. Whatever it was about the man that repelled me I did not know, but the impression of a plump white grave worm was so intense and nauseating that I must have shown it in my expression, for he turned his puffy face away with a movement which made me think of a disturbed grub in a chestnut. I went back to my easel and motioned the model to resume her pose. After working a while, I was satisfied that I was spoiling what I had done as rapidly as possible, and I took up a palette knife and scraped the color out again. The flesh tones were sallow and unhealthy, and I did not understand how I could have painted such sickly color into a study which, before that, had glowed with healthy tones. I looked at Tessie. She had not changed, and the clear flesh of health dyed her neck and cheeks as I frowned. "'Is it something I've done?' she said. "'No, I've made a mess of this arm, and for the life of me I can't see how I came to paint such mud as that into the canvas,' I replied." "'Don't I pose well?' she insisted. "'Of course, perfectly. "'Then 
It's not my fault. No, it's my own. I'm very sorry, she said. I told her she could rest while I applied rag and turpentine to the plague spot on my canvas, and she went off to smoke a cigarette and look over the illustrations in the Courier Francais. I did not know whether it was something in the turpentine or a defect in the canvas, but the more I scrubbed, the more that gangrene seemed to spread. I worked like a beaver to get it out, and yet the disease appeared to creep from limb to limb of the study before me. Alarmed, I strove to arrest it, but now the color on the breast changed, and the whole figure seemed to absorb the infection as a sponge soaks up water. Vigorously, I plied palette knife, turpentine, and scraper, thinking all the time what a seance I should hold with Duval, who had sold me the canvas. But soon I noticed that it was not the canvas which was defective, nor yet the colors of Edward. Must be the turpentine, I thought angrily, or else my eyes had become so blurred and confused by the afternoon light that I can't see straight. I called Tessie the model. She came and leaned over my chair, blowing rings of smoke into the air. "'What have you been doing to it?' she exclaimed. "'Nothing,' I growled. "'It must be this turpentine.' "'What a horrible color it is now,' she continued. "'Do you think my flesh resembles green cheese?' "'No, I don't,' I said angrily. "'Did you ever know me to paint like that before?' "'No, indeed. "'Well, then?' "'Well, it must be the turpentine or something,' she admitted. "'She slipped on a Japanese robe and walked to the window.' I scraped and rubbed until I was tired and finally picked up my brushes and hurled them through the canvas with a forcible expression, the tone alone of which reached Tessie's ears. Nevertheless, she promptly began, That's it! Swear and act silly and ruin your brushes! You have been three weeks on that study and now look! What's the good of ripping the canvas? What creatures artists are! I felt about as much ashamed as I usually did after such an outbreak, and I turned the ruined canvas to the wall. Tessie helped me clean my brushes and then danced away to dress. From the screen, she regaled me with bits of advice concerning whole or partial loss of temper, until thinking, perhaps, I had been tormented sufficiently, she came out to implore me to button her waist where she could not reach it on the shoulder. Everything went wrong from the time you came back from the window and talked about that horrid-looking man you saw in the churchyard, she announced. Yes, he probably bewitched the picture, I said, yawning. I looked at my watch. "'It's after six, I know,' said Tessie, adjusting her hat before the mirror. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I didn't mean to keep you so long.' I leaned out of the window, but recoiled with disgust, for the young man with the pasty face stood below in the churchyard. Tessie saw my gesture of disapproval and leaned from the window. "'Is that the man you don't like?' she whispered. I nodded. "'I can't see his face, but he does look fat and soft.' Some way or other, she continued, turning to look at me. He reminds me of a dream, an awful dream I once had. Or, she mused, looking down at her shapely shoes, was it a dream after all? How should I know? I smiled. Tessie smiled in reply. You were in it, she said, so perhaps you might know something about it. Tessie, Tessie, I protested. Don't you dare flatter by saying that you dream about me. But I did she insisted. Shall I tell you about it? Go ahead, I replied, lighting a cigarette. Tessie leaned back on the open windowsill and began very seriously. One night last winter I was lying in bed thinking about nothing at all in particular. I had been posing for you and I was tired out, yet it seemed impossible for me to sleep. 
I heard the bells in the city ring ten, eleven, and midnight. I must have fallen asleep about midnight because I don't remember hearing the bells after that. It seemed to me that I had scarcely closed my eyes when I dreamed that something impelled me to go to the window. I rose and, raising the sash, leaned out. Twenty-fifth Street was deserted as far as I could see. I began to be afraid. Everything outside seemed so... so black and uncomfortable. Then the sound of wheels in the distance came to my ears, and it seemed to me as though that was what I must wait for. Very slowly the wheels approached, and finally I could make out a vehicle moving along the street. It came nearer and nearer, and when it passed beneath my window, I saw it was a hearse. Then, as I trembled with fear, the driver turned and looked straight at me. When I awoke, I was standing by the open window, shivering with cold, but the black-plumed hearse and the driver were gone. I dreamed this dream again in March last, and again awoke beside the open window. Last night, the dream came again. You remember how it was raining? When I awoke, standing at the open window, my nightdress was soaked. But where did I come into the dream? I asked. You... You were in the coffin, but you were not dead. In the coffin? Yes. How did you know? Could you see me? No, I only knew you were there. <laughs> had you been eating Welsh rarebits or lobster salad? I began laughing, but the girl interrupted me with a frightened cry. Hello, what's up? I said as she shrank into the embrasure by the window. The, the, the man below in the churchyard... He drove the hearse. Nonsense, I said, but Tessie's eyes were wide with terror. I went to the window and looked out. The man was gone. Come, come, Tessie, I urged. Don't be foolish. You have posed too long. You are nervous. Do you think I could forget that face? She murmured. Three times I saw the hearse pass below my window, and every time the driver turned and looked up at me. Oh, his face was so white and, and, and soft. It looked dead. It looked as if it had been dead a long time. I induced the girl to sit down and swallow a glass of Marsala. Then I sat down beside her and tried to give her some advice. Look here, Tessie, I said. You go to the country for a week or two and you'll have no more dreams about hearses. You pose all day and when night comes, your nerves are upset. You, you can't keep this up. Then again, instead of going to bed when your day's work is done, you run off to picnics at Salzer's Park or go to the El Dorado or Coney Island and when you come down here next morning, you're fagged out. There was no real hearse. There was a soft-shell crab dream. She smiled faintly. What about the man in the churchyard? No, oh, he's only an ordinary, unhealthy, everyday creature. As true as my name is Tessie Reardon, I swear to you, Mr. Scott, that the face of the man below in the churchyard is the face of the man who drove the hearse. What of it? I said. It's an honest trade. Then you think I did see the hearse. Oh, I said diplomatically, if you really did, it might not be unlikely that the man below drove it. There's nothing in that. Tessie rose, unrolled her scented handkerchief, and taking a bit of gum from a knot in the hem, placed it in her mouth. Then, drawing on her gloves, she offered me her hand with a frank, Good night, Mr. Scott, and walked out. 2. The next morning, Thomas, the bellboy, brought me the herald and a bit of news. The church next door had been sold. I thanked heaven for it, not that being a Catholic I had any repugnance for the congregation next door, 
but because my nerves were shattered by a blatant exhorter whose every word echoed through the aisle of the church as if it had been my own rooms, and who insisted on his R's with a nasal persistence which revolted my every instinct. Then, too, there was a fiend in human shape, an organist who reeled off some of the grand old hymns with an interpretation of his own, and I longed for the blood of a creature who could play the doxology with an amendment of minor chords which one hears only in a quartet of very young undergraduates. I believe the minister was a good man, but when he bellowed, And the Lord said unto Moses, The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name, my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword. I wondered how many centuries of purgatory it would take to atone for such a sin. Who bought the property? I asked Thomas. Nobody that all knows, sir. I do say the gent what owns this here Hamilton Flats was looking at it. He might be a building more studios. I walked to the window. The young man with the unhealthy face stood by the churchyard gate, and at the mere sight of him, the same overwhelming repugnance took possession of me. Uh, by the way, Thomas, I said, who is that fellow down there? Thomas sniffed. Ah, there worm, sir. He's not watchman of the church, sir. He makes me tired of sitting out all night on them steps and looking at you insulting like. I'd have punched his head, sir. Uh, beg pardon, sir. Go on, Thomas. One night, coming home with Harry, the other English boy, I sees him so sitting there on the steps. We had Molly and Jen with us, sir, the two girls on the tray service, sir, and he looked so insulting at us that I up and says, What are you looking at, you fat sug? Beg, beg pardon, sir, but that's how I says, sir. Then he don't say nothing, and I says, Come out and I'll punch that pudding head. And I opens the gate and goes in, but he don't say nothing, only looks insulting like. Then I hits him one, but uh, it, his head was that cold and mushy, it'd sicken you to touch him. What did he do then? I asked curiously. Him? Nothing. And you, Thomas? The young fellow flushed with embarrassment and smiled uneasily. Mrs. Scott, sir, I ain't no coward. I can't make out at all while I run. I was in the fifth lancer, sir, bugler at Tello Kabir, and was shot by the wells. You don't mean to say you ran away? Yes, sir, I'll run. Why? Well, that's just what I want to know, sir. I'll grab Molly and run, and the rest was as frightened as I. But what were they frightened at? Thomas refused to answer for a while, but now my curiosity was aroused about the repulsive young man below, and I pressed him. Three years' sojourn in America had not only modified Thomas's Cockney dialect, but had given him the American's fear of ridicule. "'You won't believe me, Mr. Scott, sir?' "'Yes, I will. You'll laugh at me, sir.' "'Nonsense.' He hesitated. "'Well, sir, it's God's truth, and when I hit him, he grabbed me wrist, sir. And when I twisted his soft, mushy fist, one of his fingers came off in me hand. The utter loathing and horror of Thomas's face must have been reflected in my own, for he added, It's awful, and now when I see him, I'll just go away. He marks me hill. When Thomas had gone, I went to the window. The man stood beside the church railing with both hands on the gate, but I hastily retreated to my easel again, sickened and horrified, for I saw that the middle finger of his right hand was missing. At nine o'clock, Tessie appeared and vanished behind the screen with a merry, Good morning, Mr. Scott. When she had reappeared and taken her pose upon the model stand, I started a new canvas, much to her delight. She remained silent as long as I was on the drawing, but as soon as the scrape of the charcoal ceased and I took up my fixative, she began to chatter. Oh, I had such a lovely time last night. 
We went to Tony Pastor's. Who are we? I demanded. Oh, Maggie, you know, Mr. White's model. And Pinky McCormick? We call her Pinky because she's got that beautiful red hair you artists like so much. And Lizzie Burke. I sent a shower of spray from the fixative over the canvas and said, Well, go on. We saw Kelly and Baby Barnes, the skirt dancer, and, and, and all the rest. I made a mash. Then you have gone back on me, Tessie. She laughed and shook her head. He's Lizzie Burke's brother, Ed. He's a perfect gentleman. I felt constrained to give her some parental advice concerning mashing, which she took with a bright smile. Oh, I can take care of a strange mash, she said, examining her chewing gum. But Ed is different. Lizzie is my best friend. Then she related how Ed had come back from the stocking mill in Lowell, Massachusetts, to find her and Lizzie grown up, and what an accomplished young man he was, and how he thought nothing of squandering half a dollar for ice cream and oysters to celebrate his entry as clerk into the woolen department of Macy's. Before she finished, I began to paint, and she resumed the pose, smiling and chattering like a sparrow. By noon, I had the study fairly well rubbed in, and Tessie came to look at it. Oh, that's better, she said. I thought so too, and ate my lunch with a satisfied feeling that all was going well. Tessie spread her lunch on a drawing table opposite me, and we drank our claret from the same bottle and lighted our cigarettes from the same match. I was very much attached to Tessie. I had watched her shoot up into a splendor but exquisitely formed woman from a frail, awkward child. She had posed for me during the last three years, and among all my models, she was my favorite. It would have troubled me very much indeed had she become tough or fly, as the phrase goes, but I never noticed any deterioration of her manner and felt at heart that she was all right. She and I never discussed morals at all, and I had no intention of doing so, partly because I had none myself, and partly because I knew she would do what she liked in spite of me. Still, I did hope she would steer clear of complications, because I wished her well, and then also I had a selfish desire to retain the best model I had. I knew that mashing, as she termed it, had no significance with girls like Tessie, and that such things in America did not resemble in the least the same things in Paris. Yet, having lived with my eyes open, I also knew that somebody would take Tessie away someday, in one manner or another, and though I professed to myself that marriage was nonsense, I sincerely hoped that, in this case, there would be a priest at the end of the vista. I am a Catholic. When I listen to high mass, when I sign myself, I feel that everything, including myself, is more cheerful, and when I confess, it does me good. A man who lives as much alone as I do must confess to somebody. Then again, Sylvia was Catholic, and it was reason enough for me. But I was speaking of Tessie, which is very different. Tessie also was Catholic, and much more devout than I, so taking it all in all, I had little fear for my pretty model until she should fall in love. But then I knew that fate alone would decide her future for her, and I prayed inwardly that fate would keep her away from men like me and throw into her path nothing but Ed Burke's and Jimmy McCormick's bless her sweet face. Tessie sat blowing rings of smoke up to the ceiling and tinkling the ice in her tumbler. Do you know that I also had a dream last night? I observed. Not about that man, she laughed. Exactly. A dream similar to yours, only much worse. It was foolish and thoughtless of me to say this, but you know how little tact the average painter has. I must have fallen asleep about ten o'clock, I continued, and after a while I dreamt that I awoke. So plainly did I hear the midnight bells, the wind in the tree branches, and the whistle of steamers from the bay that even now I can scarcely believe I was not awake. 
I seemed to be lying in a box which had a glass cover. Dimly, I saw the street lamps as I passed, for I must tell you, Tessie, the box in which I reclined appeared to lie in a cushioned wagon which jolted me over a stony pavement. After a while, I became impatient and tried to move, but the box was too narrow. My hands were crossed on my breast, so I could not raise them to help myself. I listened and then tried to call. My voice was gone. I could hear the trample of the horses attached to the wagon and even the breathing of the driver. Then another sound broke upon my ears like the raising of a window sash. I managed to turn my head a little and found I could look not only through the glass cover of my box, but also through the glass panes in the side of the covered vehicle. I saw houses, empty and silent, with neither light nor life about any of them excepting one. In that house, a window was open on the first floor, and a figure all in white stood looking down into the street. It was you. And that was part one of The Yellow Sign by Robert Chambers. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be wrapping it up next week and then on to the last story in the series, and then moving on to the last long-form story for a while. Long-form is convenient because I don't have to figure out what I'm doing from week to week, but I understand that staying on one story for weeks, sometimes months at a time, is not everybody's bag. 2022 will be going back to shorter-form one-shots, hopefully. Maybe a couple of two-shots, but nothing longer than that, I think. We'll see. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please become a patron. My Patreon has all sorts of bonuses, from being thanked on the show to a bonus feed with a bonus reading of one of my favorite novels. Mark Vincent, Eric Braun, and Amber Vale, thank you so much for your support and friendship and encouragement. I am very grateful. Thank you all so much for listening. Please, please wear a mask and go and get vaccinated if you haven't already. Get a booster shot and continue wearing a mask even if you have. Punch a racist in the face and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Have a good week.